Welcome to the Ferguson Library Podcast, brought to you by the Public Library here in Stamford, Connecticut. In this episode, we bring you a talk by Gregory Zuckerman about his book, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life-or-death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Zuckerman writes for the Wall Street Journal and has published two other books on the world of business. This talk was sponsored by the Dylan Scheider Group, Hearst Media Group in Connecticut, and the Ferguson Library. It took place on October 18, 2021, and was streamed via Zoom. Here we present Gregory Zuckerman. So uh, I'm going to tell you why I wrote this book. I'm going to tell you um, some lessons from the pandemic and from the experience of chasing the vaccines, developing the vaccines, and leave you with some thoughts about the future. Um, so I uh, began this project early on in my basement in suburban New Jersey. Like many, I was locked down, working from home, uh, scared about the future. This is sort of spring of 2020. And I heard about a group of scientists, a company in the forefront of developing a vaccine, and it was called Moderna. And at the time, no one had really heard of Moderna. And it struck me as being kind of um, surprising. Why would it be Moderna that would be at the forefront of, of chasing this vaccine? And I started looking into more, and you heard about a company called BioNTech in Mainz, Germany. They're the ones putting this thing together. Uh, who else was doing it? A group at Oxford University. They were at the forefront, too. They were leading the chase at one point. And they had never developed a vaccine or a drug ever in history. Those were the kinds of people. There was a little company called Novavax in uh, suburban Maryland, which um, going into 2020, their stock was about $3 a share. They had only a few months left before they were going to go bankrupt. They had very little cash left. And yet these were the companies, these were the scientists leading the chase. And it struck me as being sort of perplexing. Why would it be these people shouldn't have been the vaccine giants? And who are the vaccine giants? There's um, Merck. Merck uh, developed the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella that we all are familiar with. They're a vaccine giant. Uh, Sanofi in Europe, GSK, those are the vaccine leaders. They're the ones who should have stepped up and created these vaccines, and yet it wasn't. And that kind of intrigued me, that, that phenomenon. And frankly, um, I was looking forward to something to root for, to get, distract me. It was a discouraging time for us all. And I thought, okay, um, maybe I can write a book, potentially, or at least write some stories for the journal about the effort to develop a vaccine. So I set out to do so, to talk to the researchers, and I went back in history to talk about the approaches that were leading to these vaccines. And they go back years and years and even decades. mRNA, the adenovirus approach, I'm going to talk about both of them soon. And it struck me uh, that this, this theme... Um, was in keeping with the kind of things that I like to write about. I've written a, a number of books at this point, and all the books have a similar theme. You can criticize me as just repeating the same theme, and there's some justification to that criticism. Uh, it just what I'm partial to, and the theme is unexpected characters doing unexpected things that people didn't think possible and changing the world. So in my first book, it's called The Greatest Trade Ever, and it's about the individuals who anticipated the financial meltdown. This is a guy named John Paulson. John Paulson knew nothing about mortgages or housing or anything like that. 
And yet he made $20 billion over two years in 2007 and 2008, anticipating the meltdown that all the banks got wrong. The banks were caught flat-footed, and they're the ones who created this mortgage toxic product, and they're the ones who got sick on it. It's kind of perplexing. So there's that theme. A few years later, I wrote a book called The Frackers. The Frackers is about this energy revolution in this country, all this oil and gas that we've developed, and we're at the point where we're literally, we're literally exporting natural gas and even oil to other countries, which is just mind-boggling for anyone who remembers 1973. I remember being a little kid in the back seat of my car, my parents' car, um, and being on a long line for the gas during the Arab oil boycott. And now we're exporting oil and gas. And who is responsible for it? It's not Exxon. It's not BP. It's not Chevron. Exxon is literally on top of, it's called the Barnett Shale in Texas. That's where their headquarters are. And that's where we start finding all this natural gas and deep in this shale, it's called a rock and was Exxon doing it? No, they'd given up on America. They were offshore in Africa and Asia. It was a group of really unlikely characters that no one had ever really heard of, Aubrey McClendon, Harold Hamm, really fascinating individuals. And then I came back to that theme a few years later. Again, I don't consciously look for that theme, but I'm drawn to it. So uh, I wrote a book in 2019 called The Man Who Solved the Market. And The Man Who Solved the Market is about a guy named Jim Simons and his colleagues at a firm called Renaissance Technologies out in Long Island. And they've created the most remarkable investing firm in history, the best returns. And they do it in a pioneering way, creating predictive algorithms, all the stuff that you see on your phone today and Netflix and Facebook. They were doing that like in the 80s and 90s for markets, predicting where the market's going to go. And Again, they're a very surprising firm, individuals to have solved the market. They don't really care much about the market. They're not into investing. They're not into companies. They didn't go to business school. They didn't grow up in trading or anything like that. These are scientists and mathematicians, and yet they solved the market. So again, I come back to that theme with the vaccine, uh, Chase. It should have been Merck. Now, I wrote about Merck in my book, um, uh, my new book, a shot to save the world. And Merck thought about developing a COVID-19 vaccine, spent a little bit of time on it, never really went anywhere. There was a rift within the company. Some people said, hey, we're Merck. We should be the ones to save the world. And other people said, well, maybe this won't turn into a pandemic. Maybe it'll dissipate like all the rest, Zika and the first coronaviruses, MERS and and, um, and, and SARS, the first SARS. So they were a split, and in the end, they didn't really um, develop a vaccine. They've got a, a, a drug that'll be coming. It's like 50% effective, but it's not as good as a vaccine. So, so who did? Who did save us, as it were? So that's what my book is about. I'll tell you a little bit about some of those characters and those companies. The first is Moderna. So Moderna is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Started in 19, I'm sorry, 2011. And it was a difficult place to work from the get-go. Um, the CEO, his name is Stefan Bensel, born in Marseille, came to America, Harvard Business School grad, an engineer. He's not a scientist. Uh, and yet he had this belief in mRNA. And I'm going to talk about it in, in a few minutes, what mRNA is. But he was a hard-driving guy, and he was difficult and really hard on his employees. Early on, they, I've got uh, stories. They collapsed at their desks uh, in the parking lot, at home, hit their heads, went to hospitals, bloody all over, trying to keep up with a guy. He was pushing them, and they were trying to keep up. He fired a lot of them, um, insulted others, 
and yet inspired a lot of his employees. And he inspired them with this belief that we can create a new vaccine approach using messenger RNA, and it's going to change the world. And he literally said to his employees, there's going to be a crisis someday, and we're going to be the ones to step up. And people on the outside of the company were very skeptical. They didn't trust Stefan Benzel. He's a great fundraiser. He raises a lot of money, but that raises questions sometimes. He's very smooth. He wears a black turtleneck. Some people, believe it or not, compared him to Elizabeth Holmes. Who knows who Elizabeth Holmes is? Raise your hand. Yes. So you're right. So um, she started this company, uh, Theranos, and turns out it was a fraud. And there were a lot of similarities between her and Benzel, and a lot of people compared them. She liked black turtlenecks. He likes to like black turtlenecks. Um, he was very smooth with, with, with fundraising and with investors, and she was too. And they were very secretive. Both companies were very secretive. And that raised suspicions. So going into 2020, Moderna was a company that had gone public, raised a lot of money, and then the stock went down. They had failed at developing any kind of drug. They had shifted to vaccines. In some ways, it was uh, not the ideal for them. Vaccines are not they are a very hot and sexy business, or they weren't until this last year, frankly. Um, so um, they had shifted, and no one really trusted them in a lot of ways. And here they were saying, we are going to be the ones to step up and save the world. And internally, they were pretty convinced they had a good approach. They had been working on it, honing it, improving it over the years, but they never had anything that they could point to. And in early 2020, Stefan Menzel said, ah, Here's our opportunity. There's a new virus. Let's go build a vaccine. And it took a little while, but he convinced everyone around him. And they started working on it and made some progress. And then come May 2020, they met real frustration because they had developed an early version of a vaccine. They wanted to develop, manufacture it, and they didn't have the money. And the head of manufacturing is a fascinating guy. His name is Juan Andres. Juan Andres, not a scientist, but a smart, interesting individual. has been in the drug business for a while. And Andres uh, lives in suburban Boston, and he started getting concerned in January. So I was, I don't know about you guys, I was flying around the world in January, not wearing a mask. Um, Andres was scared, and he saw what was happening and, and intuited that it was going to be um, real difficulty for the world. And he told his family, we got to be prepared. And, they, and he bought toilet paper, he bought tissues, he bought a third refrigerator to store food. And his family thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. They were like rolling their eyes. Yeah, right, sure, it's going to get bad. Yeah, right, come on. Um, and then a month later, his mother-in-law died of COVID. And like the rest of us, um, they... They realized, everyone realized at that point how serious it was. And the Moderna people, to their credit, were early and they developed this vaccine. And come May 2020, they want to start manufacturing it and they don't have the money for it. The company is relatively small. They went to the government and couldn't get money. They went to the Gates Foundation, couldn't get money. They went to Merck. They said, Merck, hey, let's work together, just like Pfizer and, and BioNTech are working we'll together. I'll talk about them in a second. Let's work together. And, and no one was interested. And one thing we need to appreciate is the enormity of this achievement of the past year, but um, it could have gone very different direction, and it could have been that Moderna wouldn't have gotten the money. They luckily did. They went to Wall Street, and they sold a lot of stock, and investors were willing to write a big check, and they raised $1.3 billion in May of 2020. And you know, we're very critical of big pharma, medium pharma, little pharma. We're very critical of Wall Street, but it was investors that saved the day. They wrote this check to Moderna, and Moderna took that money and started spending it on um, building these vaccines, uh, all the supplies that were necessary, and they developed the vaccine, um, as did this company, BioNTech. BioNTech's also quite interesting. 
uh, started by a scientist named Ugur Sahin. Ugur Sahin is a native of Turkey. He moved to, to Germany, and he was all about creating vaccines for cancer. And the idea of a vaccine is to teach the immune system. And the idea many people were trying to do, and they still are trying to do, is in terms of cancer, is to present a protein from cancer to the immune system and to teach the immune system um, about to identify this, this protein. And then next time it's actually really encountered in, in cancer to go fight it. And by doing so, you're educating the immune system. That's what a vaccine is. And for years, Ugar Sahin and his wife, Aslam Tarekki, they're both cancer researchers, they developed ways to beat cancer. And they didn't really make that much headway. But one of the approaches was using mRNA, the same uh, approach that Moderna used. And I'll talk about it in, in just a second. And they, by 2020 or end of 2019, had gone public, raised some money, didn't develop any kind of cancer vaccine or drug or anything like that. But they had honed this approach using mRNA. And they, too, early in, in the year, um, Aslam Tricky and her husband, um, Ugar Sahin, the CEO of BioNTech, they were having breakfast with their daughter in January. And he, uh, Sahin, the CEO, had read a, a scientific paper. And the paper was about early cases of this coronavirus in China. And what scared him was that there were asymptomatic cases. And it's a respiratory disease. And um, Wuhan is a giant, enormous city. It's bigger than Chicago and New York combined. So he put two and two together and said, wait, if there are asymptomatic cases, that's scary. That was why we were able to deal with the first SARS, even though it was, it was a lethal a virus, because we were able to isolate people that had the virus. But um, if it's asymptomatic, you don't know. And it can spread. And he thought it was spreading by then. And he said to his people, hey, we've got to step up and I know we haven't produced anything that's been approved and no vaccines, no drugs, but we can be the ones. And they threw themselves into it and they reached out to Pfizer. And early on, the Pfizer scientists I write about said, yeah, are you sure you want to spend so much time on this coronavirus? What if it dissipates? What if we spend all this money and resources and effort and nothing happens that the virus goes away? It's good for the world, but bad for us. Luckily, Sahin talked to another scientist at, beyond, at um, Pfizer, and they decided together to work on a, on a vaccine, and the rest is history. But the, the, the point is, we need to be very grateful because it could have gone very different direction. Um, we, we developed these two vaccines very early. By November of 2020, they were both uh, um, um, uh, authorized for use. But had this virus emerged in 2017, 2018, as opposed to 2019, we wouldn't have been ready. They hadn't honed all these approaches, and we would have maybe still been waiting. The average vaccine takes four years; it takes ten years to develop until last year, and the fastest one ever was mumps, four years. So, um, one of the points here is how grateful and appreciative we need to be of how fast they work, the scientists. talk just a little bit about some of the other vaccine efforts quickly. There's one led by uh, a guy named Adrian Hill at University of Oxford. And Adrian Hill's whole life was devoted to malaria and creating a vaccine for malaria. So these are very passionate, dedicated scientists. Again, Aslam Tricky and Ugar Sahin at BioNTech, they were focused on cancer. But um, Adrian Hill was about malaria. Uh, but he tried to create vaccines for other things too, Zika and MERS and you name it, he tried. And 
they too, he and his colleagues at University of Oxford, super smart, accomplished, hadn't accomplished, hadn't developed anything that was approved by the end of 2019. They use a different approach as opposed to mRNA. Um, they use an adenovirus. So um, let me explain what these two approaches are. Uh, mRNA, we all have heard in the news, right? Raise your hand if you don't know what mRNA is or you haven't heard of the phrase mRNA. Right, we've all heard what mRNA is. Um, I assume it would be helpful for me to explain. What it, okay, sorry. So mRNA is uh, a molecule. Uh, mRNA is short for messenger RNA. And it's a molecule we have all in, a, in us, um, every, uh, every one of us, and we depend on it. Basically, messenger RNA takes the message, takes the instructions from DNA within the cell to the part of the cell where proteins are created that keep us alive. Everything that we live on, um, the DNA can't do it itself. It's sort of uh, like a book, and you need, it's like I, I picture it sort of like a, a cookbook, and, and you need some help getting into the kitchen. You need to scribble things down in terms of the recipe, and that's what the messenger RNA is. It takes the, the recipe, takes the instructions from the DNA, brings it to a part of our cells to create the proteins. And if you think about it, um, and this is what scientists did, they said, well, geez, this is such an important molecule, mRNA. What if we could create it in the lab, synthesize it? Just like sugar is natural, but there's also artificial sugar uh, that we create, we synthesize. Same kind of thing. You can create a molecule just using the chemicals and, and putting the chemicals together and and um, and such the sequence of the of a of a and, and you you create a molecule. So their idea was for years, why don't we create a molecule in the laboratory that sends a message into the body? And what's the goal there? Well, we can send a message to create any kind of protein we want. And that means we could create any kind of drug or any kind of vaccine that we want. And that was always a holy grail. Scientists always said, what if we could use mRNA to create? We don't even need drugs. You could just tell the body to create the drugs. But just as soon as people got excited about mRNA, they said, well, nah, let's not waste our time on it. Why? Because mRNA gets chopped up within moments by enzymes in the cells. So it's unstable. And the immune system fights it off. So um, there was no reason to depend on it. Um, it. It would go away so quickly. You know, people today, anti-vaxxers will say, oh, mRNA is going to change my DNA and it's going to stick around my body. And no, no, no. The whole point is no one ever wanted to work with it for years and years because it's so unstable and so short-lived. And yet there are researchers I write about in my book who believed, who said, yeah, we know about these challenges. We know about these obstacles. We're going to try to figure out a way around it. So I start off the late 1980s with a scientist named John Wolfe. John Wolfe, I, I, I find him fascinating and, and very sympathetic. He's um, both a researcher, but also a, a doctor dealing with patients. And he specialized in children with genetic defects, with um, abnormal um, genes. And he said, well, what if we um, injected um, DNA or mRNA, remember that messenger RNA, to, to do some gene therapy, as it were, to basically add the right genes, um, healthy genes, normal genes, I don't like to call them, and scientists don't call them healthy genes, call them normal genes, um, into the body so that these children can be helped. And John Wolfe is the first person to show that mRNA, this molecule, you could create it in a lab and you can create potentially some proteins. And... A lot of my book is about, it's almost like a, um, a relay race where you have someone who's running and really fast and making progress and then trips and sort of hands the baton to the next group. And that's sort of what happened to John Wolfe. He made some progress and, and his work was promising, but he, he got sidetracked and met some, ran some obstacles. And then he himself um, 
uh, succumbed to uh, to cancer and um, and a kind of cancer you couldn't treat. And sadly, and he died early 2020. Not nothing to do with um, COVID, and he didn't even know um, the what would happen with with the mRNA that he worked on. But um, again, he kind of passed the baton to a group at Duke who showed some other made some advances in terms of mRNA. And then there was a group at Penn, two really fascinating scientists, uh, Katie Carrico and Drew Weissman. And they showed, they said, they, they really believed, especially Carrico in mRNA and its possibilities. And she spent her, her career dedicated to mRNA and all her colleagues at Penn, forget about her peers elsewhere, her colleagues at Penn dismissed what she was working on kind of mocked her and scoffed and she couldn't get ahead. She got fired from Penn and she stuck around and um, she persisted. And she basically, she and Drew Weissman figured out how you can change the composition, the chemical composition of this molecule such that it can get into the cells and, and the body won't fight it off. The immune system won't fight it off uh, long enough to create a protein. Now, she didn't create any kind of drugs or vaccines. And frankly, her work their work was kind of forgotten because she, they couldn't raise any money to develop anything like they wanted to, and it was kind of frustrating, but the paper was still out there, and a couple of um, researchers at MIT I write about in the book, they discovered it, and thank, thankfully they did, and their work led to Moderna, and then so it was, again, that relay race, and different researchers, fascinating, stubborn scientists, um, they kept at it, they kept at it, and they worked on mRNA until it was ready. So, um, yeah, you hear a lot of anti-vaxxers who say, well, this vaccine was done so quickly, I'm scared about it, I'm nervous about it, and you can't come away from my book without concluding that, well, actually, there was years and even decades of, of work dedicated to all these approaches, including the other approach. So there's the J&J vaccine and the AstraZeneca in Europe, AstraZeneca vaccine, and they resulted from a different approach called the adenovirus approach, and that goes back all the way to HIV and the effort to try to get a vaccine for HIV. And I began my research. I'm not a science person. I kind of assumed, okay, that was a frustrating, fruitless effort, right, when we don't have a vaccine for HIV yet. And all the scientists said, no, 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 Greg, we, have, we don't see it as failure. We learned so much along the way. And one of the things they did is they developed an approach to send a genetic message into the body, also to create protein. And instead of mRNA, remember that's just the molecule you create and you, you put it in sort of a fatty substance in a vaccine, you inject it, and that's the vaccines that we depend on today, the Pfizer and the Moderna ones. The other alternative one is to create a vaccine using a virus. And you say to yourself, well, why would I inject myself with a, with a virus? And the answer is because they figured out a way by taking out a gene to make the virus harmless. And it's a, a harmless cold virus. And it's roomy enough, as they call it, to put in a genetic message into the vaccine. And that's what the J&J vaccine is. And, and what, what's the genetic message? It's to create a protein. And what's the protein that's being created for this vaccine? The spike protein. So you basically want to teach the body. Both these vaccines do very similar things. They're telling the immune system to create the spike protein, which is sort of like the key part of the coronavirus, um, because that's where it latches on. It's very unique to it. So basically, you create this, this spike protein in us. The immune system fights it off, and it's educated. It learns. It says, wait, hold on a second. 
I recognize that spike protein. And I'm going to be looking for it. And, you, it's and our immune system is patrolling for spike protein, for some sign of that spike protein in the future. And that's what our uh, vaccines are. They, we create these spike proteins. We fight it off. We're educated in the process. It's almost like a, um, a dry run. So they fight off the, the, the would-be um, virus, and it's really just the spike protein. It's not really the virus. And it learns along the way. And that's what these vaccines do. And that's what these two approaches to the adenovirus approach, which is using a virus, and the mRNA using the molecule. And these are just fascinating individuals. So this um, Adrian Hill at the University of Oxford, who believed in his approach, um, he is among maybe the, the most difficult and unliked scientists out there. He gets up in conferences and speeches and and rips into his colleagues and peers and other people in the world of science. You don't know what you're talking about. There's a dumb idea. Um, he gets very animated. He's, um, he's difficult. And yet, he believed in this approach. And all the characters in my book are sort of um, gray characters. You're not sh I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but I'm not sure if I like them or not like them. On the one hand, Adrian Hill is a jerk to people. On the other hand, he's de dedicated his life to curing, coming up with vaccines for intractable Diseases, malaria kills millions, um, and um, he's dedicated his life. And the vaccine they came up with, it's not in America. We don't need it here, the AstraZeneca va vaccine. It's, it's effective. It's not quite as effective as the Pfizer and the Moderna ones, but it's being used in Africa and Asia and a lot of poor areas where you don't need to keep the vaccine kept at a cold temperature, and that's what the mRNA needs to be done, and it's inexpensive, so we have to give them a lot of credit as well. So um, there's some interesting characters in my book, I believe, and stubborn and cantankerous and competitive. Um, and they're the ones we owe so much gratitude to uh, for, for, for all their work and, and dedication. I'm going to just leave off by talking about some um, broader points about this era and about the effort. Um, and feel free to um, ask some questions. We could talk about the vaccines, these companies, my book, or just journalism in general, the Wall Street Journal, um, fake news, all that kind of stuff. Feel free to ask me any questions. Um, I guess the first point is just I want to reiterate that these vaccines, yes, they were created quickly, but their corners were not cut. What we did for the first time in history is do things simultaneously. So why do vaccines usually take so long? Well, you've got to develop them, you've got to test them, and then you've got to manufacture them. And why would you manufacture a vaccine before it's been approved? You're spending billions of dollars when you don't know if it's going to be approved. Well, we were able to last year. Between the Wall Street investors and Operation Warp Speed, there was money that was written for these companies. And, and we basically said, yeah, 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 we don't know if it's going to be approved. We don't know how it's going to, if it's going to be effective, but start making the vaccines already. And that saved us. That really made it so much faster. And that's one of the big reasons why um, it's so fast. These, these were developed. So I talked to a lot of vaccine hesitant um, kind of audiences, and maybe there's somebody here too, and I enjoy doing so. There are um, lots of people who are rational. They're not all irrational. They don't all believe that um, Bill Gates is trying to get us sick. Uh, that there are chips inside us, et cetera. Uh, there's some people that are just legitimately concerned because, hey, these vaccines were created in 330 days, and historically it's been a decade. And my answer is um, yes, but there are reasons why we went so fast. We didn't cut corners. We tested them in, in tens of thousands of people. It was because that we were doing things simultaneously, A, and B, it's because of the decades of work that are in my book. So it wasn't like 
right away they said, hmm, let me try this new mRNA thing. And ah, it actually works. No, they spent years of tireless effort and, and, and long hours and deep in laboratories around this country and around this world trying, world trying to make it happen. And um, it's important to come away uh, appreciative of that fact. Um, it's also one thing that I kind of come around to is that we've got a, it's a remarkable country we have. And we've got individuals that are um, ambitious and innovative um, and there's a reason why these vaccines were either created here or with the backing of American investors. We, we still um, have these dreams and we chase dreams. And unlike other countries, and, and I've talked to executives and, and researchers were born elsewhere. And they say there's no way we could have gotten that kind of backing for um, revolutionary, groundbreaking um, approaches like mRNA elsewhere because American investors will still write checks with the, for the hope of down the road, maybe in 10 years, getting profits. No other country is like that. But the flip side is that individualism that has led to this, these breakthroughs has also led to, um, I would argue, some entrenched views in this country where people don't want to be told what to do. They don't like mandates. They don't like pe the government advising them about their behavior. And I would argue we, we think way too much about ourselves and uh, self, everything is self. And I, and I leave off with um, the late um, Rabbi Sachs, who, who died not that long ago. And he talked about in, in, in one of his last interviews how um, if like the Martians came down and, and looked around and they would say everything is about self in this, in this country of ours, self-actualization, self-realization, self, self, self. And there's no we. Um, so too frequently we're, we're thinking about ourselves and not about others. And when it comes to things like the mask, and it's, it's about protecting others when you know, getting vaccinated. Maybe you're healthy and you're young and you should be fine, but we don't want to spread it. We don't want this vaccine to have more strains and variants. And it's all about caring for others. And we seem much more focused on protecting our individual rights than on protecting each other. And it's sad. And um, hopefully one of the lessons is we can learn from that. But I'm not exactly uh, hopeful, frankly. Um, and then um, I'm just going to end off with sort of wh where I see things going. So the bad news, I'll give you the bad news and the good news. The bad news is this virus isn't going anywhere. We're stuck with it. This um, It's going to be endemic, as they say, and um, we can't lose it. We can't get rid of it. Um, partly because there's so many people that are resistant to vaccines and there are so many parts in the world where they haven't started vaccinating. And partly because... Um, that's what viruses do. They morph, they, they um, adjust their new variants. But I think it'll be, here comes the good news. I think it'll be more like there are four other coronaviruses floating around in society that lead to colds. And eventually that's kind of what it's going to be. You'll get a runny nose and you'll say, well, I, I just got coronavirus. I got COVID. But between the vaccines and really good drugs that are coming, we'll be able to handle this stuff. And I do think there's second and third generation vaccines that are coming. And you're going to go into a doctor's office maybe in two years, three years, and get a COVID vaccine, but also get a flu vaccine rolled into one. Maybe they'll throw something else in there too. So these vaccine specialists, are, researchers are really focused on the next generation and improving their approaches. And um, they're also pro, uh, 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 applying them to other things, cancer, MS, um, autoimmune disease, malaria, HIV. They're really ambitious. For them, you know, I've written a whole book about what they did here, but they think there are other chapters ahead. So um, I'm really 
I'd like to leave us on, a, on an optimistic uh, vein. Uh, I like to. My book is about what went right and not what went wrong. So I like to be more uh, upbeat. And you know, if you're gonna spend time with a book, it should be an upbeat um, read, or at least it, it, if, if possible. So I like to end my speech uh, with that as well. Um, I am optimistic about the future and getting back to normalcy and getting a hold of this uh, virus. Gregory Zuckerman's books can be found at the Ferguson Library and at bookstores from coast to coast. And he can be found at gregoryzuckerman.com. If you'd like to see an extended version of this talk, including the Q&A, it's available on the Ferguson Library's YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.